0: You guys celebrate what Jesus has done. Um, I am, I am uh, thoroughly excited to see uh, what God is doing in your community. You guys have a tight knit community that um, just exudes the love of Jesus in a way that I, I don't see very often. You guys are exciting in your community, exciting in your uh, koinonia, which is the Greek word. It's, it's this idea of sharing life with one another. Um, And I I see you guys come together, uh, both in worship on Sunday morning, just the way that uh, your leaders interact with one another. And it is just exciting to see. So honestly, I am honored to have been invited back. Apparently, I didn't scare you too much a month ago. Um, And I am excited about the prospect of possibly coming here. Um, So a little bit about me. Uh, My name, as you heard, Joshua Nink. I've been married for 15 years. No one's ever accused me of being quiet. <laughs> um, together we have two kids, uh, Toby and Abby. Um, Toby's 13, Abby's 9. Um, at my heart, I'm a, I'm a geek. Um, I'm a proud geek. I let my geek flag fly. <laughs> I like bad sci-fi and explosions on TV. Um, I'm all about that. <laughs> um, but at my core, if there's one thing that I want people to know about me, it's that I love Jesus, um, above and beyond anything else. I love Jesus, and I want people to know Jesus through my life. And I want to be able to help other people, other people display Jesus in their life. Well, folks, right now feels like a really tough time to show the love of Jesus. It feels like a really tough time to be compassionate as Jesus was compassionate. Because let's be honest, the world is a lot right now am i right it's a lot everything kind of feels like it's stretched thin like it's at a breaking point stress is high all around us and and seems to be rising every day we have civil unrest we have covid and all its realities we have rising poverty and unemployment or dipping weird economic realities Every channel, as I flip through the TV, is filled with talking heads trying to cast blame, craft theories, selling their brand of proposed solutions, while simultaneously casting everyone else as a mustache twirling villain out to destroy your family, right? As a result, our society is becoming more and more polarized. And as the gaps between us continue to grow and our culture becomes more and more fractured by fear, by pride, and by this shallow idea of identity that is more informed by our differences than from what God has crafted each of us to be. And sadly, the church is not immune, right? The church, big C, God's people here are not Immune. In a world where everyone seems to be fighting with someone, it's very easy to become distracted from our mission. It's very easy to begin focusing on the skirmish on our Facebook feeds or on our front step or on our newspaper. It's very easy to get caught up in thinking that our future will ultimately be decided by an election or become obsessed with the COVID case counts or when in reality, our assurance, our future is in God's hands. He's the one on the throne. Not the headlines that make their way into social media. He's the one that determines our future. In fact, it is actually in times like this when we're stretched thin, when the mission of the church becomes infinitely more crucial, infinitely more important. Because the life of a Jesus follower needs to rise above the divisions. Am I right? We need to rise above the divisions, the politics, the fear. We need to stand apart from the talking heads and the keyboard warriors. But how do we do that when it's so easy to get swept up in the rage and in the division of our current world? Well, believe it or not, the world that Jesus came into um, in the first century was, uh, had, had its own stress. It had all the stresses of 2020, um, and and then some, to be honest. They had their own plagues. Like, literally, they had the plague. Um, They also had leprosy and various blood diseases, and people would would be quarantined for their entire lives in leper colonies and communities. This was a reality of their daily life lasting generations and generations. They had political unrest and racial tension around how the people of God should react about being occupied by the Romans. Okay, Remember, the people of God living in, in and around Israel were being occupied by the Romans in the first century. And there, the, the way that that community reacted to that reality was a huge source of tension in Jesus' world. There are some that capitulated and just went with the Roman system. There were some that like low-key rebelled, like they would not pay their taxes correctly. And then there were straight-up zealots who demonstrated in the streets, going as far as to incite violence and destruction. This is the world that Jesus stepped into. This is the world in which he announced his kingship And his kingdom, this is the world that he announced a new kingdom, one that we are still a part of today. And this is the world in which he laid down expectations of what it means to be a member, to be a citizen of this kingdom of heaven. This morning, we're going to walk through um, a chapter in Matthew, Matthew 9. We're going to kind of bounce around that chapter. Um, and we're going to look at how Jesus reacted to a divided world in and around him. And how he commands his followers to, to, to be like him. Now, interesting note as we go into this. When the Bible was originally written, when the Gospel of Matthew was really originally written, obviously there were no chapters or verses. Okay? Uh, he didn't, when Matthew wrote his Gospel, he didn't write 9-1 and end it with, yeah. That's not how he worked. He just wrote... Kind of a stream of consciousness, basically ideas, and then it was scholars later who decided to to divide it up into chapters and verses. And so, Matthew 9, the reason scholars divided it this way is because it is kind of one cohesive thought, and that thought, that purpose of this chapter, is trying to demonstrate how Jesus shows compassion in his divided world. So, we're going to jump right in here, verse 1. And I'll interrupt every so often here, but verse 1, Jesus stepped on into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man laying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, for your sins are forgiven. Now, real quick, it's a common belief at the time that a person's circumstances were largely a result of their sin or their failures. Okay, So therefore, things like poverty, things like sickness, or even physical disability were seen as a result of your personal sin. While riches and good health uh, might be taken as uh, uh, proof of piety or proof of faith. Okay, Not necessarily accurate, but it's how the culture worked. Okay, Not always, mind you, as we'll see later in the cha- chapter, uh, you'll see that the culture sometimes went against that ruling. But the reality is... This person being paralyzed was largely seen by the culture and received by the culture as there's a reason for his paralysis and it's half to do with his sin. That's why Jesus, when he interacts with him, the first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. Because in today's day and age, you see someone sick, you don't don't walk up and it's like, it's okay, you're forgiven. (laughs) But that's that's what's happening there. As he sees this person who's paralyzed and the first reaction is he's forgiven. Now, Back in verse 3, at this point, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming, or speaking, uh, uh, speaking badly about God. Basically disrespecting God through our speech. This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say get up and walk? But i want you to know that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins so he said to the paralyzed man get up take your mat and go home then the man got up and went home and when the crowd saw this they were filled with awe and they praised god who had given such authority to man jesus didn't just say that his sins were forgiven Okay. Now keep in mind, the religious leaders are sitting there like, you can't forgive sins, you're, you're just a human being. You're, you don't have the power to forgive this man's sins. And he goes, oh yeah, I can't forgive sins? How about I forgive him sins and make him walk? If his paralysis is due to his sin, explain that. And so Jesus stepped right into that. He restores and redeems the suffering. Jesus set this example of restoring and redeeming the suffering. He made sure that he intersected with those who were suffering. And he restored them back to health, redeeming their life in the process. So we, as his followers, we need to seek out those who suffer, to address their suffering, restoring them to who who they were created to be and redeeming them to their God-given purpose. Forgive any wrongs that they may have caused you, either direct or indirect. Just as Jesus stepped into the life of the paralyzed man and said, your sins are forgiven, not only that, Not only are you redeemed, but we're going to restore you and lift him up to his feet. And he's able to walk away. That is an example of the rules of this new kingdom. That we are to restore and redeem the suffering. Continuing in verse 9. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now pause, remember that this has all taken place in first century Judea under Roman rule and everything I said about the political tension is happening. So the Jewish people right now, who are predominantly of Middle Eastern ancestry, are paying taxes to this Roman government foreign and pagan. So these tax collectors are collecting money from their own people in order to fund a government that does not value their culture and that many consider to be oppressive. Not only that, but tax collectors would often skim a little bit off the top. And so as a whole, tax collectors were like pariahs In Jewish society they were outcasts they were seen as traitors to their own people however the Roman government paid these guys well with a little bit of extra off the top they tended to live pretty well so this meant that often they were ostracized they were kicked to the side they were outcasts in Jewish society they were outsiders. So if a tax collector was gonna go throw a party at his house, who's going to attend? Not the religious leaders, not the stand-up citizens, not the politicians, not the, not the celebrities. The people who are gonna attend an outcast's party are fellow outcasts. People that are also pushed to the side of society. So this would be a party among cheaters. Cheating business owners, other tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. This would have blown the minds of first century Jews. Much of the religious practice was about distancing yourself from sin, It was about producing, like, barriers between between me and sin, as far as I can be. So you say, I can't, I can't touch a, a, a dead body because that'll make me unclean. So now I can't even be in the same room with a dead body. So now I can't even talk to... Like, they just keep distancing themselves from sin in this way to try and preserve their holiness, preserve their piety. So the idea that a holy man or a teacher or someone who is claiming to be divine in any way would step in and have dinner with sinners is just mind-blowing. And then for him to say that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. love this analogy. I, this is my, one of my favorite analogies that Jesus uses in his teaching. All right? That it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. Think about it. How often do we say, well, I broke my arm, but I don't want the doctor to yell at me for it, so I'm going to wait till that heals, and then I'm going to go see the doctor. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. We go to the doctor when we need healing. We go to the hospital. We go to the physician when we are sick, when we need that intervention. But yet, we treat Jesus like that. We treat God like that regularly in our society. No, I can't come to church because I'm still a little messed up. If I walked in the, if I walked in the door, I, I'd burst into flames. I hear that all the time, Right? I can't can't put my best foot forward because, because I'm too messed up. Folks, Jesus is the healer. He wants to intersect with our lives. He wants to bring that healing. Jesus is more interested in someone being honest about their failure. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick his purpose was to redeem the world through him, forgiving our failures, forgiving our messes, not because of anything we do, but because of something he did on that cross. He wants to save, to save our cities. He wants to save our country. He wants to save every single human being. He loves you so deeply. So therefore, he embraces us in our worst Amidst the sickness, it's not a healthy who need a doctor. We need to remove that stigma in the church, right? If we follow this example, it means seeing people around us as God sees them. Okay, we need to embrace the outcasts. Because no one is an outcast when it comes to the love of Jesus. Jesus died so that everybody might come to him. No one is too far gone for forgiveness. God went to that cross, Jesus went to that cross, so that every single person who calls out to him, who accepts that gift, can come to him and be saved. Therefore, there are no outcasts in our mission So if we see outcasts, we need to embrace the outcast. No one is beyond that. We need to elevate the disenfranchised. It's not enough to merely acknowledge those who have been pushed out. We need to elevate or restore those who have been pushed out. Jesus didn't just forgive Matthew. He ate at his house. He sat at his table and then called him to be one of his disciples. He invested in him fully, even allowing himself to be put on the cross for his sins, just like you and me. His example in dealing with Matthew is an example of not just embracing the outcast, embracing the sinner, but elevating and restoring them, investing in them. We are saved by Jesus. Those of us who have accepted the gift of Jesus have already been forgiven. That grace can actually be used as a tool to elevate others. Just as Jesus, who was perfect in his divinity, sat at the table with sinners and got a lot of hate for it, we, having already been forgiven, need to stand so close to those that have been pushed out that the stones that are meant for them hit us instead. That's what Jesus is doing. His perfect divine self, not just acknowledging the outcast, but associating with the outcast, and then investing in the outcast, making him a member of his trusted entourage, and now we are reading a chapter in the book by that outcast. So if we're supposed to follow Jesus, we need to embrace the outcast and elevate the disenfranchised. Now I'm going to skip ahead here to verse 35, because I'm sure you guys want to eat lunch at some point. (laughs) And I think it's interesting that this spot kind of captions this whole uh, uh, collection of stories of compassion. Because what this tells me is that there are no shortages. There are no shortages of opportunities for us to show compassion for the world around us. Am I right? (laughs) I mean, there there is no shortage of opportunity for us to be compassionate with our fellow human beings today. Seems like everybody's arguing. There's no, there's no shortage of opportunities for us to be forgiving. There's no sh in it. See, so he calls us to follow in his footsteps here, to be compassionate, to step out into the field and harvest. The harvest is plentiful. There is so much opportunity for compassion. There are, there's so much hurting in this world. There's so much addiction. There's so much loss. There's so much anger in this world. There is no shortage of opportunity for us as the church, as God's people, to wade into that and to love people where they are, to cross that gap and to love people where they are. No shortage at all. The limiting factor is us, It's in our ability, it's in our numbers to step into that role. I guarantee you love people, you will reap the reward tenfold. You will see that love blossom in those people and it will spread like wildfire. The only limiting factor to changing the world through this method is how many people are willing to live like that. So reading through Matthew 9, there are three things that Jesus tells us to do through this. He says we need to restore and redeem the suffering. We need to embrace and elevate the outcast. We need need to actually step into the harvest. In other words, we need to bring people along with us. What do you want the church to look like in the future? I don't mean this church necessarily, although that does work. What do you want the church, big C, to look like in the future? How are we setting up that church for success? How are we laying the foundation of being able to love compassionately in a broken world? Who are the suffering in our community that we intersect with that we can redeem and restore? Who are the disenfranchised in our world and what steps are we taking to embrace them? Who are you bringing along with you in that process? Who are you laying the example for? And I had a, I had a pastor friend of mine who asked me the question. It made me like stop and think completely. And he said, how is God building a new Eden through you? Because that's, that's our role. That's our job. As Jesus' followers, our mission is to change the world. It's to literally change the world. He did it with 12 people in first century Israel. Whiting can do it. Change the world. That's our mission. That's not hyperbole. That's not exaggeration. Our mission is to change the world. How do we change the world? Through compassion. Through this. Through being able to love people where they are to bring others alongside us to do that, to elevate the disenfranchised, to embrace the outcasts. That's our role. That's our job. And I guarantee you, you will see change like no other because through that, what God does is he restores creation around you. He is building his kingdom around you through your, through your compassion. That's how the world is changed. That's how a new Eden is created, through you. It doesn't always mean for you introverts out there, it doesn't always mean going door to door and do straight, like, do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord? I understand. That's, a lot of people see evangelism. That's great. But for you introverts out there, that could just mean making the world a little more beautiful. It could mean cleaning up your town. It could mean investing in art. How are you redeeming the world around you? Because that is our role. That's our goal. As Matthew 9 this, this chapter, this beautiful chapter that lays down these fundamental aspects of who Jesus was and how he intersected with the world to show compassion. Redeem the suffering, elevate and embrace the outcast, and step into the harvest. Bring someone with you so that we can change the world together. All right? Let's pray. Dear Father, The harvest is plentiful, it's the workers that are few. We know that we're the limiting factor when it comes to your gospel here on earth. And so God, I just pray that you empower us. You empower us, equip us, give us the ability to wade into your world to be able to intersect with the darkness, to be able to intersect with suffering when we see it, to be able to step into this world as your people, as your holy church, empowered to be able to bring about restoration to the world around us. We want to change the world We want to change the world and nothing is impossible when it comes to you and your mission. So God, we love you. We know that in the midst of this crazy world, you are good. You are good. And we know that that as crazy as it might be for us down here, you got this. You got this. This doesn't scare you. So we put our trust in you and we go forward and we know that our greatest days are ahead of us because you have shown us through Jesus how to save the world around us and redeem it god you are good and we love you in jesus name amen